Welcome to The Good Mood Show with Matt O'Neill. This is the show to help you navigate the challenging moods we all experience as human beings and where you will learn the best strategies to feel the good moods and good vibes we all love to feel. Because when you feel like your best self, you are your best self. This is The Good Mood Show. Now, here's your host, Matt O'Neill. Welcome to The Good Mood Show. I am your host, Matt O'Neill. Today, I am with a doctor who actually sat with me and created a lot of positive change in my life. He's an NLP life coach who specializes in helping healing trauma and anxiety. It's Dr. Gary Schmidt. Gary, welcome to the show. Matt, thank you so much for having me here. This is a really exciting conversation. We've started to prepare for this and um, nothing I'd rather be doing this morning. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I, you know, it's the good mood show. So we start out with something that's going great, a win or good news. What, what's going great for you right now? Well, two things. Let me talk about an A and a B. So one is, in spite of the fact that I've been doing this kind of work, helping folks with trauma and anxiety for close to 40 years, it never ceases to amaze me when you actually watch the kind of change that can happen. So I had a woman comes to me, a very successful professional who realized something she didn't know, which is she had been sexually assaulted um, when she was much younger. She was an adolescent traveling, something happened medically, and a doctor crossed some boundaries he shouldn't have. Very successful person, happy life, good professionally, but noticed that it, there were certain places where she had more fear than made sense and she held back. So using this protocol for dealing with PTSD, um, within two sessions, she sent me an emoji, the one with the top of your head blowing off. Yeah, I love like, that one. It's so, <laughs> like, because so many things changed. Yes, the fear was gone, but more importantly, like life energy came back and just the level of joy, excitement, and just satisfaction grew so much. Um, hey, we'll celebrate that. <laughs> Man, it's crazy that that we could be carrying around for decades a trauma. 22 years in this case. Two decades carrying around the fear from a trauma that we just, that our mind will just block out, like pretend it didn't even happen. And it will literally hide it from us. The second good news to me was the fact that um, I did a training about two, two and a half years ago in Charleston to teach people how to do this protocol. Um, and I was in a meeting at a big medical uh, setting here where people were gathered to learn about trauma and pick up some tools to help them because the level of stress for nurses right now is staggering. A lot of them are yeah. leaving the field and we're trying to bring a little program to help change that. A few simple things that can make a difference. One of the people in the room was a woman I had trained um, and one of her clients, someone she'd helped, was a doctor just finishing degree as a student, becoming a full-fledged doctor. Um, and this woman had had a horrible accident, motorcycle, very critically injured, left her paralyzed, waist down, mm. and had utilized the institution's highest quality employee assistance, all therapists for multiple years. Um, and her PTSD, she had full-blown trauma, got worse. And the sad thing about trying to treat PTSD in the traditional ways is mostly what's done doesn't work very well. And she had gotten worse. So the woman in the room that I had trained 
had two sessions with her. And again, even though it was 18 years prior, completely gone, transformed her life. And the the radiance that you could see as she described it um, and how much it affected her marriage and her work with her students was uh, just, I get goosebumps. <laughs> Man, we'll cheer to both of those. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so that's what we're going to bring to today's show. We're, we're going to teach on this show some things that anyone listening can can use mm-hmm. to reduce anxiety and, and heal trauma that mm-hmm. maybe even happened decades ago. And I'm Absolutely. so excited to bring your work out to the Good Mood Show. I've got uh, good news myself today. I got a text message about an hour before you got here from my daughter, Harper, who's eight. And she had Aww. said, Dad, I finished my journal entry for today and I just wanted to share it with you. And Harper uh, listed three things that she won at yesterday Aww. and three things she was grateful for Aww. and gave herself <laughs> a pat on the back, a little bit of inspiration, and then uh, planned her perfect day and had all these really cool stickers and everything on it. And man, it just inspires me that she's so young yes. and committing to such cool habits to Really, I mean, that, that'll change her mood in, a, in an instant. Well, to me, one of the good news pieces is that people like you who, you know, your work isn't traditionally doing this. And yet for all kinds of reasons, you're bringing tools of the technology, the social media to help people learn this kind of thing. I mean, I think the way we're dispersing information into the culture now is so exciting because we have tools that while they can be problematic if they're not used right, when they are used right, people like your daughter are learning from things like what you're doing that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Absolutely. And that's, you know, to me, that's the inoculation against trauma and anxiety because you understand it differently. It has a whole different meaning. So much of what we're going to get to talk about is the change in meaning of these things mm. that can have profound not only effect on the anxiety or trauma, but on the way you approach your life, the way you see everything that's happening. Yeah, you had mentioned before we started the show that two people could experience the exact same event. Yeah. One could be traumatized, have hold trauma, yes. and one could catapult into growth. So great example of that, the stories that people tell around this, there's a horrible airplane crash in the Azores, I believe. I think it was a Delta flight, fiery wreck. A lot of people died, but they talk about several pair examples, two people sitting next to each other or near each other, same typical background, education, and they look very similar. One of them ends up paralyzed with fear and anxiety, post-traumatic stress after this event. And the other one reports uplifted. So more spiritual, more joy, more appreciating every moment of life because they realized how close they came and many people came to losing it. So this really gets to what a neurolinguist does. And it sounds awfully technical, but when you understand it, it starts to make a whole lot of sense, which is that example of the crash illustrates that our subjective experience, how we take what happens to us from the outside and turn it into meaning and feeling and behavior is completely subjective. Two people can have a different experience, right? What was unique about this approach to helping people is understanding there's a structure behind that subjective experience. And if you change the structure, you understand what the levers are that somebody can use, you can change how they respond. Um, 
we're going to get to the example of that with PTSD. Another another way to think about it is looking at the contrast or modeling what works compared to what doesn't. So one of the patterns that came out of neurolinguistics is how do you overcome grief? This is one of the biggest not feel good moods, right? And yet when yeah. you understand it, it's actually an evolutionary gift. So this idea of internal experience we did a modeling project many years ago, about 40 people, half of whom, I think it was 22, had had a horrible or multiple horrible losses. And yet again, they were uplifted by it. And even though they had the sadness and the processing of the loss, it changed their life for the better. They all reported this. The other group, 18 people, were stuck in what clinicians would call pathological grief, where they were sad all the time and depressed and anxious, and many of them medicated, couldn't sleep well, teary a lot of the time. What was so fascinating is the structure of their internal experience, the group that was stuck, were remarkably similar one to the other. The internal structure of the group that had been liberated by this was also similar, and the two groups were very different. Yeah. I, I actually recorded a show called The Gift of Sadness. Yeah. And uh, and I and I love that you're talking about these two different groups of people because one thing we can do when we're all going to experience loss. All of us have will. to. It's the nature and of life. And we're all going to experience deep sadness. Correct. And, but if we can lean into the gift of it, that none of this was guaranteed us. Right. The whole experience of life, the whole experience with that person that we've lost was right. all a huge gift. Yes. We can then awaken to the idea that everyone else that we get to spend time with, you and me here today, is a total divine gift and that we're just lucky to have. So agree hundred percent. The the way that because I lost several people very close together at a critical point in my life, suddenly lost them to death. And I'd be driving into work, tears streaming down my face, um, hard to function at few moments. And what I learned through this, also helping clients with this, I didn't know this model then, but as I learned it, realized that if you have these emotions that are such powerful sense of loss, there's an element that your unconscious is tugging on your shirt sleeve, whispering in your ear saying, pay attention. Yeah. Because if it's worth feeling these powerful feelings, it's trying to tell you what you value, right? Wow. When I lost these two men in my life, it was because I had this closeness with them of trusting each other. And we did business together, two of us. And the creativity that came from having that kind of relationship was so special that I wanted that again in my life. Like if it's worth having those feelings, then it's worth organizing your life so that you can have what it was that you felt like you lost so that you'd have the fullness of it again in your life as you move forward. You won't have that person, but you can have what made that relationship so special. And just what you said, that the deepest, strongest emotions are our soul, our unconscious. Yes. Tugging at us saying, pay attention. Exactly. For me, I was getting tugged at my soul with this sadness to say, pay attention to the people that you haven't been paying attention to ah. that are already here, yeah, that are still here. Yeah, boy. And lean into mm -hmm. like, you know, and I'm the type of person that doesn't think I take people for granted. Mm -hmm. And yet there was a whole nother level <laughs> 
of being present, of being grateful, yep. of just just being so joyful for those people in my life that I wasn't fully living until that moment, until I got the tug that say, pay attention. And I did. I opened my eyes and paid attention. And that's using that feeling rather than feeling bad about it or running away from it or blocking it or denying it or drugging it. You're going lean into it, open it up to go, what can I learn from this? What, what can, can I, I learn do with this? Right. Yeah. What can I learn? Because the ego just wants to focus on what I lost. Yes. Oh, I don't have that anymore. I don't have that relationship anymore. Me, me, me. I should. It should still be here. And that's not fair that it's not. And that's the, that, and if, if we stay in that, that thought process, of course, there'll just be continued suffering, but we got to count, we got to counter that with, well, what can I learn from this? Yeah. Where, that, where's that, the silver lining here? Absolutely. And that gets to this trauma subject, right? Yeah. And so step back a minute and go from a point of view of how do you help someone? I think about trauma in two very different ways. There's the big T and the little T. And it's not about the intensity of what happened. It's more about the reaction. So what's traumatic? People throw the word around. Everything's traumatic now, right? This is traumatic. That's traumatic. And there's a way in which they're right. There's a lot of things to be tra traumatized by, not feeling good, right? The mood isn't what we want. That's trauma. But there are distinctions that are more important to make about what do you do with this? So the, the thing that leads to PTSD, a big T trauma, used to be thought that the only way when I started my career, most of the field thought that if you weren't in the military, hadn't faced that kind of life-threatening death, it couldn't be PTSD. A psychiatrist brought me into his practice to help his patients that he realized had PTSD, but they'd never been in the military. It was from a sexual assault or a physical assault or even a car accident that was so intense. So what is this thing? Well, what it is, is a brain functioning injury. It's not a mental disorder. It's a physiological problem where the amygdala, the part of the brain that runs fight flight, has gotten so activated by something that was perceived to be threatening, even if it wasn't, but often it is. And it turns on that switch that then won't turn off. Yeah, you had said that you have dropped the D off of PTSD because it's not a disorder. Right. It the, is. The researchers told us this when they saw the, so this protocol called RTM, which stands for the Reconsolidation of Traumatic Memories. So it's the traumatic memory that causes the thing we now label PTS. And they said to us, we can't call it a disorder because the mental health community thinks a disorder is a mental health problem. It's not a mental health problem. It's a brain processing disorder. Right. It's a brain, brain function. The brain isn't functioning properly. Right. And so you have got a three session process Yes, where you can get the brain to function properly within yeah. three sessions and the PTS never comes back. Never comes back. We have, I have decades of data. And the good news is that the first version of this was a colleague doing this with some uh, folks that were in a building, 9-11, they were out in the street, saw what happened, were horribly traumatized. The owner of the business hired five coaches, therapists, and he was one of them. And he used this protocol with every one of them and every one of the people, 125 he worked with, got over their PTS quickly. And um, 
that led to a study where we actually had enough money to scan people's brains because even if the trauma was decades ago, if you do a brain scan, you know how to read it. You can see that this part of the brain is lit up. It's like way too bright on the scan. It the looks amygdala. red and yellow, the amygdala. Yeah. And within five days of this protocol, when they got everybody together, did the scan, no sign of trauma, completely so, gone. So if somebody has PTS, you said, and it's post-traumatic stress, you have said that they cannot heal that on their own. This is one I really encourage people to try to use tools themselves. This is one you really nearly impossible to do yourself. And I and and this is Gary Schmidt. So anyone who's in the Charleston area, and even if you're not, you should fly in. If there's if PTS is affecting someone you care about, come see oh. Gary. He he has got a proven method to to heal that. The other type of trauma, which is what we're going to be talking yeah. about today, that causes the majority of anxiety. Vast is, majority. Is little T trauma. Yes. You had said that in 38 years of practice in psychology, you're seeing more people with anxiety today than you've ever seen. Than ever before. Yeah. And I think we can attribute quite a bit of that to the pandemic. And um, I think also what's happened culturally, certainly in the political scene, has just made people feel unsafe. And again, that part of the brain that's come with many years of evolution to keep us safe in the world is constantly looking for danger. And so we've given it quickly through social media. There's lots of access to news. A lot of it isn't good. And then people come with anxiety. It's a lack so, of certainty. Right. And and right. so we people are feeling less certain than ever before, right. which makes sense that we're feeling more anxious than ever before. Correct. Because just walking into the grocery store and there's no baby formula on the shelf. And all of a sudden that could just be a small subconscious lack mm -hmm. of certainty. Well, what, what will be next that I can't order? And that yeah. will reduce our certainty. Yeah. Because anytime someone has fear or anxiety, you just described it so perfectly. We've taken something that's usually in the moment, an empty shelf of uh, baby formula. But what our mind does is project where that could lead in the future that would be even worse. Right. As opposed to the other kind of emotion of shame, guilt, remorse. Typically, that's more past oriented. It's coming from some event in the past versus the future. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the difference. Fear is anticipating a future that's right. not great. Right. And this is anxiety is, is yeah. the anticipation without joy. So one way to think about the small T idea is that this is more typically a less intense event than the big T trauma, but it's been repeated over time. The same thing or different things all about uncertainty create a lot of fear. There's a slogan that people talk about, the death of a thousand paper cuts. Right. So one paper cut doesn't hurt too much, but if you had too many in a row, it builds scar tissue at least, and maybe you bleed a lot. And so someone that had a unhappy childhood. Yeah, dad, a, a dad who wasn't that him. kind. Right. And so I, I came to see Gary and and your, the session I had with you was incredible. And um, you just, I just felt so comfortable talking with you. And I, I ended up talking about my dad. I didn't show up with any objective. I wasn't going anywhere. I had, I, I wanted to just come see you because I, I had heard great things. And you told the story of Onoda. Before we get there, let me back up one second to lay the groundwork for where you go in with that, because 
what happens is someone has typically has an experience of doing something or feeling something that they don't like. It's the opposite of the good mood, right? Yeah. It's they can't get to the good mood um, or that's such a bad mood <laughs> that they can't experience something else. And so if I were to imagine the simplest way to get at this with someone, which is what you and I did, I would say to them, tell me about some part of your life where you would say, I, Matt, or I, Gary, X, and I don't want to. Yeah. What's X? So it could be some form of fear or anxiety. It yeah, could be I, a behavior. I have, I have this low hum of anxiety that just kind of plays in the background. Mm -hmm. And I'm not always conscious of it, mm -hmm. but sometimes I notice it and it's just kind of always there gnawing at me. Yes. And so if I have that experience you just described and I don't want to, then the obvious question is, well, Matt, you're a resourceful guy. Why don't you just stop it? <laughs> and the obvious answer is I, I can't. could if I would, yeah. but I can't. Yeah, I don't, I don't want it, but it's here and I don't know how to stop it. That's the key. So you don't know, back to this idea of there is a structure to the subjective experience of that underlying background noise. But when you understand the levers, you can change it. And so this gets to the idea that since you can't do it, then who's running it? Because it's in you. Well, a great metaphor to think about this is we're made up of parts, right? On a Friday night after a long, hard week, you get a phone call, someone's having a party, you'd want to see everybody there. So some part of you, the social part says, yeah, let's go. It'd be fun to see everybody. But there's another part of you that's more about self-care and family time. And you go, I'm tired, <laughs> tough week, right? So we see in many situations where there's a dilemma like that, there's different parts of us. Well, right. the way we get to IX and I don't want to is typically at a much younger age when you had a lot fewer resources than you do now as an adult, this part of you made a decision about how to deal with something stressful, painful, threatening, and it developed a pattern of behavior and response that's now the X. Yeah. And it's continued for a very long and time. And the X, in this case, we're talking about anxiety. Exactly. So, so a, our younger version of ourself, maybe four years old or five years sometimes, old or yeah, even younger, you said, be. sometimes before we even had language, made Correct. a decision that is running the show right now. And exactly, it's that piece of us that we need to go back in and talk to and heal. And so this is where we get to our Japanese soldier story. I know. I just want everyone who's <laughs> listening though, if there is... It, it, Take an example in your life, and Gary's going to take us through this story that really had a huge impact on me. What is the I, X, and I don't want to for you? Is it I get angry and shout at people sometimes and I don't want to? Or what, what are some others that, that people might experience that they don't want to? It could be as simple as, I mean, or as complex as something like I, I have a good friend who's a doctor who says, if I see one cookie in a box, I eat the whole box. Yeah. I, I, it's really not good for me and I don't like the way I feel, but I have to do it. I overeat and I don't want to. There was a period in my life where if I did an athletic thing, I would push it too far, often to the point where I'd get hurt. And I knew better and I knew that the injury wasn't fun, but the next time I got on a bike, I'd do the same thing I'm again. I'm overly competitive and I don't want to be. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
And, right. you know, the, the one that's behind so many of these that sometimes the person won't recognize immediately until you say what I'm about to say, which is such a common, particularly North American problem of not feeling worthy of love. Yeah. And our culture supports that because it's good for a lot of economic I don't, I don't feel worthy of love and I wish yeah. that I did. Yeah, exactly. And so when we identify something like this, we're having a conversation and I hope your listeners can find even a little version of this because what we're about to do will make a lot more sense and it'll attach to something useful because the unconscious mind, which is running these behaviors, listens very carefully at this point. And that's what we want right? Part of the healing is to get to the structure of the subjective experiences. We want to have a different relationship with ourself. That's, that's the development we want, right? That's the healing we want. That's the thing that can change everything pretty so quickly. I, I think everyone who's listening has picked out <laughs> the thing that they do that they don't want to do. And so how is it possible that that's persisted for months, years, decades, right? And the story of the end of World War II, there was a Japanese soldier. He was a communication expert. His name was Hiro. I think that's the pronunciation. Onada is the last name. He was on an island in the Philippines with three other men. And the war ends, and as very often happens in that, they don't get good communication. They don't realize it's over. And since he was doing the thing he was told to do by his commanding officer, which is to defend the homeland, to stand for the values that were important to him, to protect his family lineage, which is Japan culture, that's a big deal. You know your lineage and you know what you stand for. And he was trying to do that as best he could. The military, with the American help, knowing that this is a common thing where soldiers don't quite get the word, they flew planes over the islands dropping leaflets and saying, the war's over, come home. He just took that as a manipulation, went into the woods deeper with his soldiers and fought harder for many years. And the punchline of the story is when was he retrieved from this island? And the answer is internet reports different things, but it's all very close to March 9th, 1974. How many years after the war had 45 ended? is when the war ended. So do the math. It's a long time. 29, 29 years. 29 years. He fought World War II 29 years. After it was over. Every single day. And, and you, you Turns said out that he, he was living in the jungle. Yeah. Turns out that one of the men quickly left the second one, I think, died of an injury. The last one was killed, I think, in a shootout with a local villager. They were trying to steal food, leaving Onada's the last one. And how he's recovered is an interesting part of the story. But basically, he literally wouldn't leave until his commanding officer in uniform showed up and said, give me your sword. And he took his sword, surrendered, tears in his eyes. I did my best. Um, Marcos, who was the president of the Philippines, actually um, officially forgave him for he murdered several people in this process. Yeah, so this Onada yeah, yeah. is, the war's ended. He yeah. doesn't believe it is. Right. He's still fighting a war right. that he thinks was was going right. on, right. killing rats in the jungle. To live. Eating rats. And then he would 
create assaults on farmers, innocent farmers who were not yeah. fighting a war, but and he believed that they were. He thought they were the soldiers. Yeah. And it got to the point where I think as late as 5962 something, they actually dropped leaflets from the sky with pictures of his family and news headlines saying the war was over. He still thought it was a manipulation because like the parts within us very often, it seems so risky to give up what the part's done that it just doubles down on its job. It goes in deeper. Well, it's the familiar. Exactly I've been fighting this war now for 30 years. It's familiar to me. And the unknown is scary. If I I stop fighting, that's scary because I don't know what life would be like without this fight. And what we can hear in this, even though you could say, well, this guy's crazy. He wasn't crazy. He was devoted to what he thought his commanding officer and above him, the emperor of the whole country wanted him to do. He believed that in the same way that these younger parts within us trying to survive, mostly prosper from the risk that it perceived are doubling down on the behavior very often, even though we as an adult have tried therapy and medication and do these things to change it. And sometimes, of course, that works. But the people that end up in my office have usually seen a bunch of therapists and taken a bunch of meds or not or some approach to try to fix it. But if you haven't gotten to this part of you, often it's deeper in the jungle. And what what you said was to me when we went through this story, you said once the Japanese government did send the warship and sent his commanding officer to the beach and he came home. Yes, his life became so much more comfortable and easier and better and had more purpose. Well, he he now had access to the resources to do the thing that he really wanted to do. And so this is where the the real story is a little harder to follow, but apparently he went and rested for a while in Brazil, did some farming, but eventually came back to Japan and worked with children. So you can think that the intention, the positive intention behind what he was doing, which is to preserve the culture that he grew up in and take care of the people that were part of his culture, he actually got to do. And that's, of course, what happens when we uncover this for one of us, where we have a behavior, I X and I don't want to, we find what its positive intention is. Now, like Onada, you can use the tools and resources you have as an adult with all these other competencies you've developed to actually go about fulfilling the positive intention behind the original situation. So Onada wanted to help his culture. Now that he's out of the jungle, he's got tools. He actually succeeded in that. And he gets to sleep in a bed with a pillow (laughs) with air conditioning. Go to the grocery store and eat some real food. Yeah, he (laughs) can go buy fruit and vegetables. Exactly. And his life is... In, in every single way, better and more fulfilling, he was teaching children in his culture about survival. Exactly. Uh, and he was totally fulfilled in every way when he stopped fighting that war. And so you turned to me and you said, Matt, what war are you still fighting that ended decades ago? Right. And so the way to do this is to start with the thing I asked you, when someone says I X, so X is some sort of this underlying fear, whatever a listener is feeling, the question is, without thinking about it too much, because it's so easy to get lost in our head, let's pay attention to the body because it's trying to tell you something. If you just 
pointed without thinking much about it. Where do you feel the underlying feeling, whatever that is? Where is it in your body? Where would you identify it? For me, it's always in my chest. Yep. And then within the chest, chest is a pretty big area. Is it the whole chest? No, for me, it's typically in the center of my chest, like yep. right above my solar plexus. Yes. And how large an area? Like if we, is it a P? Is it a brick? What's the rough dimensions of this? Yeah, like a softball. Yeah. And then it gets really interesting to go, well, what's the actual sensation? And anxiety or fear is a label, but what's going on in the body that we label with that? So this softball in your chest feels like what? Yeah, it starts to feel constricted or tight. It, it is, feel, just feels like things are tightening, like a muscle is tightening. And of course, when we think of the bigger story of where this came about, it makes a lot of sense. So the next step is to have the person put their attention just on that feeling. Even if it's unpleasant, just focus on it for a moment, attempting not to judge it because so often when someone gets to my office and we're talking about it, they've spent years hating it. Someone recently came in and said, that's the demon. It's the enemy. It's somebody we've had to try to get rid of. And after the story, we realize all we're trying to do is get our little Japanese soldier out of the jungle so that we can have a parade to honor him or her and help that part of you do the thing it's always been trying to do. So if you feel that feeling in your chest, close your eyes, just take a breath for a moment. And as you put your attention there, ask the part of you that's causing the feeling, what is it that it's trying to do for you that's positive? And when you did that, you got an answer. Yeah, protect me. Exactly. Now, almost always some form of protect me is what the person's going to say first. Because the reason that we would have one of these responses that lasts so long is it was a big deal. Even if it was a paper cut, when you were two years old, it didn't feel like a paper cut. It was a big deal. Right. And so protect is going to be the word. Now, protect or safety is always away from a problem. But we want to go a little further and find out what's the toward. what. So it's, if it's going to protect you, that's from a problem. But it's protecting you so that what that's positive could be true. Yeah, and so for me, when when I dive into this, yeah, my dad was really scary, and I got lots of praise from my older sister, my older brother, and my mom for being smart. <laughs> what a conflict! Oh my god! And right? my dad would constantly like never give praise, zero yeah. praise, and just lots of like anger. So then I said, well, great, I'll just lean into being smart and I'll put all my energy and resources into proving how smart I am so that I can get their love and admiration. Yeah, yeah. And then that often leads to then what kind of, how did that show up when you were that age? What were you doing? Oh, I, man, I, I leaned really heavy into school. Yeah. And so then great grades were really important. And then that produced a tremendous amount of pride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the pride 
then turn into arrogance and Mm -hmm. aloofness and separation. Like I'm better than everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the opposite of love and connection, which is what I ultimately wanted. I started all of this like to be so smart and to get good grades and to be successful, to have the love and connection because that, but that was my person in the jungle. Right. Fighting for love and connection and actually doing, fighting a war that it didn't need to fight. So at this point, this is the moment when it gets so interesting because if you bring your attention back to the original feeling with as much gratitude and appreciation as you can, because now you know that this little Japanese soldier that's in you was trying to do something really wonderful in spite of all the unintended consequences that were not pleasant, right? And so if you do that and you focus on that feeling of what does it really want again? Love and connection. Put your attention there for a moment. Notice where that feeling is in your body. Yeah, it's in my heart. Exactly, which so often is so close it's to the so place close. where you had the other feeling. I know. But it's a but it's different. And so then if you put your attention on that and just sort of let each breath for a moment go to that area. And as you exhale, it'll get a little bigger. It's kind of like that, you know, you drop a pebble in a still pond and you just watch it ripple out. You start to feel it throughout your chest and down your arms and down your legs. Yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. And you can feel that there's this expansive radiance, if you will, or this energy or this joy or this hopefulness, people will often say, about the fact that what this part has been trying to do for you for all this time is to connect to the love and the joy in your life. Isn't that awesome? And so now that part of you, of course, has access to the, how old are you? 41. Yeah. The 41 years of experience, tools, connections with other people, models, skills to then go after the very specific way that it's trying to get love in your life to do that in ways that work for you, do that ways that are healthy for your lifestyle and what you care about. So similarly to the way we were talking about sadness at the very beginning of the show. Yes. And it's the, that's our soul or our, our subconscious tugging at us saying, Hey, look, this is important. I want to show you something. This thing, this feeling of anxiety mm-hmm. is our soul tugging at us saying, look, Pay attention. Pay attention. Yeah. There's something I'm trying to show you. You want love and connection. Yeah. And organize your life in a way that you can go after it in spite of the fact that you may have fear about doing it. It's like at some point in time, leaning in to the fear is the thing that helps us get past it. It helps us digest it, integrate it, right? Because you dive right into it. You right. dive right into the center of it. And, and but what we all do is resist it. Oh, I don't like that feeling. I don't want to feel that. I hate that. And, but what we resist persists. Yes. yes. So so the, the actual solution is to dive into it, go straight into the heart of it and say, what are you trying to show me? Well, and what's so interesting, you just point out the distinction that more and more people are showing up in my practice for, which I would call the advanced course which is the spiritual side of this, which is, you know, the part of us that's not spiritual, that the ego that developed as egos should and do to keep us separate in the world and have a life and how to function tends to get overdeveloped over time and more, I mean, mine, I want to feel good all the time, 
having sadness or a little anxiety that doesn't fit my image. It's not what I'm told <laughs> I should have. And so I should always be in a good mood. Right, right. Uh, this is a good mood it's show, a good right? Mood show. Doesn't Why? the whole world just get to be in a good mood all, all the, time? the time? And that, so uh, no. the only people that <laughs> never ever have anger, have sadness, or have fear or anxiety are in the graveyards. Done. It's the only ones that don't have it. If right. you are an alive human, you get sadness. You get anger and you get some anxiety and fear. It's just, that's just part of the game. Yeah. And when we connect with these parts of us, when we connect with more of the internal world, we realize that this is an advanced GPS system to guide us to how we can organize our life to actually have it better, to have more good moods, even though we're accepting the fact that sometimes we won't. I love that you call it a GPS system. Well, uh, another guy that I work with named Matt says it's spiritual discernment. Very well said. Yeah. He says, he said, you're, uh, wherever that feeling is, if it's in your chest for me, it, it definitely is. When you feel that feeling, for me, the tightness, he says, this is your spiritual discernment. This is your soul saying, hey, you're thinking a thought subconsciously or consciously that is causing you discomfort. Pay attention. Yes. Stop and ask what's going on because if you ignore it, it just grows and bigger and bigger and bigger and turns into this anxiety that's around all the time. Right. You had said um, <laughs> that you help people have spiritual awakenings. I help them find the way to do that. I don't think I have much to do with it except opening doors and trying to help them find their way into these meanings because, um, yeah, more and more people that have done a lot of work on themselves are realizing that there's another level on which to do the work, which is, for lack of a better word, spiritual and an awakening to what that means. So what is a spiritual awakening? What does it look like to be a spiritually awoken person? That's a big question, and it's a good one. Um, for me, I believe that it's what you've been pointing to a lot, which is feeling much less attached to the expectations that we think we're supposed to feel good all the time. That's one. That point earlier, whereas if we are being aligned to the will of whatever word we want to use, the one, the force, the divine intelligence, God, Allah, then by definition, things are working kind of the way they're supposed to. Yeah. And if we're awakening, then we're more at ease with that. And we're actually going to look for ways to be more aligned with what's happening rather than not. One of my favorite quotes is, everything will be okay as soon as you're okay with everything. <laughs> and until that point, it will not be okay. Yeah, it's perfectly said. Um, and I, I believe that I, I know for me, what happens is those preferences, which again, we get a lot of reinforcement on the outside for wanting to feel good all the time or wanting to have, you know, show up in the store and I want my strawberry ice cream because that's my favorite, but they're out of it. <laughs> <laughs> How dare they? There's still 20 different flavors <laughs> that are all awesome. <laughs> Think about this. A hundred years ago, they didn't have strawberry ice cream in a store. Correct. And yet now, if we don't get our strawberry ice cream, that so is not, out. that is not okay. <laughs> but just, I mean, just not, it's, it's just maybe a generation or two. And now we all are entitled and expect and demand that we get everything the way that we, we want. We want to. Yeah. And so the, 
the getting over yourself, that that part of the self, the ego self that wants something a certain way and it wants it now and it wants it all the time. Spiritual awakening is where we soften that. It's not that we don't have it, of course, because our bodies are wired to do that. It's a selfish system that we're occupying. To keep us alive. Keep us alive. It's, yeah. yeah, it's old programming that's designed to do that. You know, as I told you earlier in our conversation, I've seen more anxiety than ever before. And the thing that will shift it quicker than anything is the sense of reading the signal in the body is something useful. It's really getting that this is a survival mechanism that the reason we're still here is homo sapiens, right? It had that purpose. But if we get to the biology behind it, all that feeling is in our body, whether it's my son and I going to the racetrack in Atlanta driving Porsches really fast, which I did a couple of days ago and felt my heart rate increase and sweaty palms going down that back straight or somebody scared you or you've had fear in the middle of the night or, 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 or is that your body's just released adrenaline, norepinephrine. One comes from your brain, the other from your adrenals. It's the same chemical. We just call it something different because we're scientists and makes it sound cool. It has one purpose get your attention to be more clear, more awake, and more energized in case you had to deal with an enemy or chase down dinner, which most of us don't have to do. <laughs> but we might be doing a business plan or a new relationship or dealing with someone who doesn't like us or a national crisis around healthcare. And what are we going to do to use that energy that your body's just given you so that you can move forward? So that Well, if we resist it, which is now it's a problem. Now it's a problem. It's, not, it's, than, it's a feeling I don't want and I'm having and I shouldn't have it. So as opposed to utilize the feeling instead of using it, moving. because <laughs> when you were going a hundred miles an hour in that Porsche yeah. and your heart was pounding and you had the exact same feeling of excitement yeah. or nervousness, whatever, or anxiety, whatever we want to call it. It's the same feeling. Right. Uh, you were using it to slam on the brakes and make the turn instead of running into the wall. Exactly. And it, you used you used the energy in a useful way. Well, one of the great versions of this is as a neurolinguist, a lot of people that showed up in training wanted to teach it or something like it. So we had a course around how to do better platform skills, how to be in the front of the room and be more successful, right? And one of the big obstacles to public speaking, which you know, in most studies, that's the biggest fear people have, right? Even more than death. I Even know. more than death, yeah. right? Which I'm, I'm addicted to speaking in front of because I love it so much, not for me, but for them, because it's a chance for all of us to learn something together and right, grow and change. But one of the stories that came to me was I was in a hotel in some city working and just had the TV on. Uh, often, you know, you come in and they turned it on for you. And for some reason, it was on a public radio uh, TV station. And on it was Bobby McFerrin, you know, the the acapella singer of many years ago, famous for the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I love that song. Yeah, great song. And he was doing a little workshop with some young people, students clearly had come to this thing and they were filming it. And they were doing his you know, sound, rhythm and sound. He was doing this with them and they stop and everybody's a little sweaty and they're hanging out. And then he said, well, ask me questions before we finish up today. And one of the students goes, look, the biggest concern we have as actors and performers is this anxiety and fear. You're about to go out on stage and you feel the sweaty palm and the nervous in your belly and you're, how do you deal with it? You know, you've been doing this for 35 years. How do you, how, how have you gotten over it? 
pause. He looks at him and he goes, I'm not over it. Right. It still happens every time I walk on stage. And they look totally confused. He goes, look, if I'm about to walk out behind the curtain to an audience and I don't feel that, they're not going to get their money's worth. That's what lets me know I'm clear, awake, and alert so that I can do the task at hand. It's not anxiety. It's preparation. I'm alive. I'm alive. Yeah. I just read a quote from a uh, NFL football player. They were asking him if he gets nervous before games. And he said, of course, every game. And he said, my college football coach told me, if you're not nervous, you're not ready. Yeah, same, right. And he said, so, um, and I, I've just heard that, that nervousness is excitement without joy. Anxiety is excitement without joy. It's the exact same emotion. It's what, at the very beginning of this show, you said it's the meaning we give things, the so, label we give things. Totally right. And so one of the biggest changes that's happened in these many people that I've worked with around anxiety is when they start talking about something happens, thinking about this coming up and I get anxious. I go, we're not using that word anymore, right? Just right. take that one out. Yeah. Just eliminate it from your vocabulary. Stop using that yeah. word and change it to the one that fits better with what it's for in your life. Preparation, it's attention, it's clarity, it's energy. Every time that sweaty palms tightening happens, call it that and notice how different your response will be. Yeah, Changing I'm, the I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this abundance of energy. Who doesn't want to be more energetic? Right. We right. all want more energy right. every day. And now I just got some. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, to be fair, someone that's had a long history of an anxiety disorder, that's crippling. You lose sleep. You feel terrible. Your health deteriorates. It's not that you're suddenly going to have this rosy attitude and everything changes. The rosy attitude, however, will give you access to your physiology, to your psychology, to your spiritual self that allows you to start. Remember, we're trying to move the levers that allow us to do something useful with us. Gary, this has been such a joy, such a pleasure. I, I would pleasure. love for people to who know someone who suffered from PTSD that doesn't have to anymore, know that there's a cure, a, yeah. a, a three-session program Absolutely. that you have that can really change the way their brain functions or anyone who just wants to feel not do X anymore. How would they get in touch with you to, to learn if you, more? If you remember my name, Gary Schmidt, G-E-R-R-Y, Schmidt, C-H-M-I-D-T, the German spelling, dot com, you'll find me. And, um, you know, part of what I ask everyone to do that wants to connect is call me. There's a phone number there. Just call me and we should chat because first thing that has to happen is a connection. If we don't feel a connection, I'll find someone to send you to. There's now a handful of people in Charleston, small handful, who know how to do this protocol that will cure PTSD. And I'd be happy to refer someone if they can't. And earlier you said fly into Charleston and I have quite a number of people to do that. And yet if you can't, there's a way to do this even remote. It's less than ideal. I'd rather be sitting in a room with someone, but I've done this with many people uh, remote and it works extremely well. Oh, like over Zoom or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So they could reach out yeah. Gary Schmidt, Google you yeah. or GarySchmidt.com, G-E-R-R-Y yeah. Schmidt.com and, and set up a time to talk. Well, I'd love to. Man, 
I, I got so much personally out of this conversation. Thank you. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Good Mood Show with Matt O'Neill. For free resources, videos, and materials about getting into your best moods, head over to thegoodmoodshow.com. And remember, when you feel like your best self, you are your best self. See you next week. Same time, same place.